Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. Everybody, uh, it is with great pleasure that I'm going to be talking today with Stephen Snyder, aka Recluse. Uh, if you don't know about his podcast, The Farm, or his blog, Bicep View, um, I highly recommend it. Uh, Stephen is easily one of my favorite podcasters. So he um, he swings with a big bat. So he's all very wide-ranging uh, thinker and topics and a superior researcher, like off the charts. So with that, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me on today. Uh, should definitely be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to start with something that's, um, it'll be interest, of interest to a lot of our audience, namely uh, the figure of one Frank Buckman and the Moral Rearmament Society. And the reason why this is of such interest to our audience is there's a lot of people in recovery in the 12-step world. And, um, you know, for them, Buckman's either kind of a relic or, you know, some people, they, some people the more Christian bent tend to put them on a... Um, on a pedestal. And so really just who was Frank Buckman and what was the Moral Rearmament Society? Or society, is it Moral Rearmament? It was the movement actually. They, they went through a couple of different names uh, over the years. Uh, well, I mean, if you were, if you're familiar with um, what is usually referred to as the family or the fellowship with uh, Jeff Charlotte had chronicled in his excellent uh, books on those and then more recently in the, uh, the Netflix documentary series, uh, the moral rearmament movement was kind of a precursor, precursor to that. And uh, Buckman had known, what's his name, Abraham Faraday to some extent, uh, who was, of course, the founder of the family and the fellowship. Uh, back in that whole milieu in the 1930s and so forth. Um, by that point in time, Buckman had already been a pretty established force. Um, he had become kind of a spiritual guru, um, I think around the early 20th century, maybe either shortly before or after the First World War. And um, his early base of activity was really in Oxford um, in the UK, and he got a lot of support initially from some of these, you know, big European families and so forth before he started to uh, make more inroads into the United States. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I mean, now, of course, some of the techniques of moral rearmament seem rather cliched, uh, though certainly they're time-honored uh, practices used by many cults. Um, a big thing was their practice of, um, oh 
gosh, I can't remember the exact name of it now off the top of my head, but it was basically their variation on like group confession, essentially. I mean, this is something that you see just with so many cults where basically you get up and you start talking about um, some of your most deepest shameful memories, most sinful moments, however you want to refer to it in front of the group, usually which Buckman would oversee. And um, this was really also, I think, how he kind of made inroads with a lot of, um, you know, the elites in the first place. I mean, you get these very wealthy, these very powerful people in these intimate settings. You sit down and have them start giving these elaborate confessionals, which I believe one uh, participant had even referred to kind of uh, as uh, spiritual nudity, I think. Um, yeah. All, you know, overseen by this, you know, middle-aged man sitting there with his fly unzipped. Um, it was very... <laughs> strange to put it mildly um which is why i think buckman was ultimately run out of most of the countries uh that he uh, made inroads in after a certain time um of course he had also become a bit of an unabashed supporter of nazism during the 1930s uh that didn't really help things either um of course i know in your case you're probably referring to his connection that he had with um aa um, of course, one of the uh, originators of the 12-step program um, had had a lot of connections with moral rearmament back in the early years. Um, yeah, the whole thing with AA is really strange. I just was uh, talking to Doc Future, I guess, a bit about that. If I'm not mistaken, um, the... Uh, the inspiration from one of the founders of AA had come from taking Belladonna, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, it was used as a, um, believe it or not, it was part of a detox protocol. And it was widely used and it was a tincture. And so this guy took it as Bill Wilson took it as part of his withdrawal. And then he had this Oxford group member visit him and they did some of these exercises, including the one you talked about, uh, which is confession. I think it was soul surgery is what they were. Soul called. surgery is what they called it. Yeah. And so he had a spiritual experience vis-a-vis -vis that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess Bill Wilson later became an advocate of um, LSD therapy in the 1950s because, again, he kind of felt that the religious experience, quote unquote, from ingesting a psychedelic would be the most effective way of getting people to give up, you know, alcohol or something if they could have that direct, you know, uh, kind of religious experience that you couldn't theoretically achieve. Yeah, and that's something of a taboo topic in 12-step circles that he actually did that. Um, so the funny thing about, you know, your, well, what was really enlightening about your work on this was this, this business of confession, soul surgery, uh, in AA is what's called a fifth step, you know, but you, you do it with like a sponsor, with a trusted confidant. You don't, you certainly don't hang out your laundry in front of a room full of people. But then the more I started thinking about Buckman, I was like, is this sort of like a proto, um, kind of blackmail thing i mean is that in a way what he could have been up to which is oh yeah 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 I and mean, then I using also, that leveraging that for more power influence uh i definitely think that could be a reason for it as well i mean it's certainly you know i mean going back to the long history of confessionals i mean you kind of wonder is this possibly one of the reasons why the vatican has been you know retained its uh historic power for centuries on end it probably had access to a lot of juicy secrets in that fashion and um probably a lot of the protestant denominations uh you know decided to go in with that but 
I mean, that's a pretty common method, though. I mean, it seems like with a lot of the more serious cults or secret societies, I mean, kind of at the other end of the spectrum, you could look at something like Propaganda Dewey, um, you know, the infamous Masonic Lodge in Italy that was used for various intelligence functions during the Cold War. Um, one of the prerequisites for joining the P2 is effectively you had to give uh, Gelly, the uh, Grand Master, material about yourself that could be used uh, as blackmail material and on uh, blackmail material on some of your associates as well. So that was sort of how he was able to gradually compromise much of the Italian state because you have all these VIPs signing up. They're giving him you know, stuff that could be blackmailed for themselves and their associates. And you gradually bring in a broader and broader network. And eventually you've got everybody covered. And I mean, it would hardly be surprising. I mean, if some of these, you know, cults operated in a lot of the same fashion. I mean, certainly a guy like Buckman, who was... Um, insanely opportunistic to put it mildly uh i could see that having a real appeal to yeah and what's what's striking to me is you know i don't know it was somebody about the epstein thing and he says uh you can't really uh, bribe a billionaire i mean blackmail is in a way the main tool of leverage but it seems like this this you know whitney webb talking about it with um uh, Meyer Lansky doing it, and then the whole Epstein thing, the whole pay-to-play thing with uh, Weinstein and Hollywood. And then you wonder even about things like elite um, fraternities, right? Where these, these blue-blooded guys just act out and then they forever have the goods on one another as they form you know, business and political associations moving forward. It, you, you know, it's just, it, it's only in the last year that I started thinking, is this endemic in the power structure? Well, I kind of think so. I mean, especially, uh, you know, when you look at British society, which is really what a lot of our, you know, elite overclass was modeled upon. I mean, obviously the connection isn't quite what it was maybe 50 years ago, but I mean, we're still essentially using the same modus operandi. And um, in the case of the UK, um, they've got the, you know, charming institutions known as public schools. Um, they're not actually public schools. They are uh, very exclusive private schools that historically these scions of the great families were sent to so that they could be taught how to be glorious little empire builders in the mold of their uh, predecessors. So at these public schools, the they've had a reputation for just decades now for the horrendous abuse that the students have been subjected to there. Of course, there's the well-known hazing, the bullying, uh, which is apparently quite extreme, but there was also for years just a litany of sexual abuse committed against the students, both by other students themselves and um, faculty members. And I mean, you know, this was something I looked into in the book that I, uh, I just had come out, a special relationship. Um, which, uh, you know, I explored a lot of figures in the British establishment, but one I really looked at was uh, the family of Julian Amory, who would eventually become the Sir Cal chairman and just a major player in the British deep state for years. But um, his brother, John Amory, was a very interesting uh, figure. Um, of course, their father, Leopold, was just a conspiracy theorist wet dream. He was round table society, a big associate of Lord Milner, a faithful socialist, a Freemason. And a major Zionist. He was uh, believed to have been one of the principal authors of the Balfour Declaration. Um, he was partly Jewish. Uh, his sons were both a quarter Jewish. 
Uh, despite this, John Amory became a fanatical Nazi uh, during the Second World War and uh, actually had the distinction of being one of the only Britons executed for treason. Um, he actually went over to Nazi Germany and effectively served as a propagandist for them, which they would beam his broadcasts in the UK throughout the war. Now, John had undergone just horrendous abuse at these public schools. Um, he had eventually literally started prostituting himself out as a minor to wealthy aristocrats and so forth. And he was apparently even um, working as like a doorman for um, uh, one of the really notorious clubs. Uh, I think it was run by Kate Mayfair or something like that in uh, London during like the 1930s. And this is like when he's, he's like 14 years old. Okay, and I mean, they've got him like recruiting students, um, I think it was from Haro, if I'm not mistaken, and bringing them over, you know, to this club. I mean, these were all minors and stuff. And it's just, yeah, this was the kind of insanity that was going on at the public schools. And I mean, uh, on top of that, which is the hazing and the just general sexual abuse from the teachers and the students. And, you know, it just seems like when you're looking at it, I mean, partly it's to generate blackmail material, like you're saying. I mean, all of these, you know, kids are compromised even before they're adults. But on the flip side of the coin, you're almost uh, inducing a sociopathic mindset into what is going to be essentially your future of your ruling elite. So it's it's very disturbing. Yeah, it's profoundly disturbing. And what it really sounds like is it's kind of a um, I think Jason Horsley would put it this way. It's like being initiated into a trauma cult. Yeah, I mean, effectively. And I mean, I know Jason, obviously, I mean, you know, he grew up in the UK. He has, you know, direct experience with the public schools. And I mean, you know, he, of course, went into the litany of people who were raped and so forth there. I mean, but yeah, it's it's really very much, I mean, from what I can tell, this was essentially the, you know, method that was used by the British uh, for years to ensure that they were producing the right kind of people, quote unquote, to run their nation. So right. Right. People who had a stomach for empire. Exactly. I mean, you know, you had to be able to go out and take on the white man's burden and um, slaughter, you know, the uh, the less developed civilizations at will. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, so it's kind of interesting. Already we've got this this connection. Well, we're seeing something. You've got Buckman who has uh, an infatuation with the elite who has proto-fascist sympathies. And you've got this Amory fellow who kind of fits a similar profile. And then you have Buckman being very influential on, and this is, this is super taboo in 12-step circles, largely unknown, but taboo just the same. Buckman being something of a mentor to the Reverend Moon, is that right? Yeah, there was, uh, well, you know, obviously, um... Uh, you know, Don Diligent, uh, the farm's resident uh, ex-coldest, would be a little better to answer that. But yes, um, Don definitely, uh, he was, of course, a member of the Unification Church for many years. And uh, after defecting, he's done a lot of amazing and groundbreaking research into the Moonies. And that was essentially his conclusion that very much a lot of the methods of the Unification Church had been modeled on 
Buckman and rearmament, which again isn't entirely surprising. I mean, of course, um, what is it, Miles Copeland, the uh, the CIA officer, um, also the father of Stuart Copeland, the drummer for the police. Ironically, um, Miles Copeland had an interesting book called The Game Player, I think, where he talked about that how essentially the CIA used uh, was it high occultism and low occultism. Uh, the example of low occultism he gave was uh, the Church of Scientology, and the example of high occultism was uh, moral rearmament movement. But yeah, I mean, moral rearmament was basically a movement that was targeted specifically at a lot of ruling elites in different countries. And even in the, you know, Cold War years, moral rearmament had made a ton of, you know, inroads to uh, statesmen in Africa and the Middle East and a lot of less developed parts of the world, much like what the family uh, would do later. So, I mean, they, in a lot of ways, would have been a natural body, you know, for the intelligence community to work with. And certainly they probably liked what they saw. So... So when Copeland makes this distinction between high and low, does high really just refer to the the, the target audience? I mean, I, yeah, that's kind of my sense. You know, I mean, effectively, the high occultism would be, you know, targeted a very exclusive branch. I mean, a lot of elites, VIPs, whereas, you know, I mean, obviously, it never really became a mass movement and has ultimately become maybe more exclusive. But, you know, there was at least at one point an attempt to try to make the Church of Scientology into a broader movement, effectively. Yeah, yeah. So, and then when we get into the world of the Reverend Moon, uh, you and your your stellar research team, I got to give a shout out to Keith Allen Dennis. Oh, yes. Keith is a treasure, too. Um, it's I got to plug his book, too. He's We finally got him to uh, release his thesis, his Wackle thesis is a full-length book. Um, hopefully, it'll be out next year. It is uh, That's the World Anti-Communist League. It is going to be freaking amazing. I'm so excited that Keith is going to finally publish some of his work. Well, the work you guys did on Wackle was just yeah. unbelievable. I mean, it filled in this huge gap in my knowledge. So... Um, that's kind of where I wanted to go is sort of connect these movements like MRA and the Unification Church to this larger movement, the World Anti-Communist League. So could you just give us kind of a, a snapshot of what the World Anti-Communist League was? Well, there were two principal branches. Um, the Asian uh, branch which was known as the Asian People's Anti-Communist League or APACL. And then there was the European one, which was known as the Anti-Bolshevik, or uh, yes, the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations. Um, the European one did have kind of quasi roots in Nazi Germany, but it had even kind of the genesis of it, it existed even before then effectively. But um, it was largely dominated by the Ukrainians pretty much throughout its existence. And, you know, as Moss Robinson, who's another great researcher in the Wackle crew, has demonstrated, I mean, there's a lot of connections to this fascist uh, Ukrainian network, the OUNB, and I mean, a lot of the stuff that's still going on in Ukraine to this day. Um, it's not a coincidence if you guys have ever wondered why Ukrainians turn up in a lot of these bizarre intrigues. They've had a tendency to do that for close to a century now, and a lot of it goes back to the ABN and the OUNB. So anyway, you had that kind of, you know, quasi-Nazi uh, thing with the ABN, which was uh, for years rather embarrassing to wackle, but, you know, uh, birds of a feather and all. Um, on the other hand, you had the APACL outfit, uh, which came into being um, in the early 1950s. Uh, the Unification Church was one of the main sponsors for that in South Korea. And the other ones, uh, the support mainly came from Taiwan and Japan. Um, as I've tried to emphasize time and again, 
Taiwan is effectively an apartheid country. It was more or less a glorified narco state for a good chunk of its history, which you never hear about. No. Um, but no. a lot of the, you know, the opium trafficking from the world from, you know, really the 1930s up through the 70s, uh, Taiwan had enormous degree of influence on that. Um, and then Japan, again, you know, Japan is, of course, a bit more of a legitimate country, but a lot of the support for uh, Wackle came essentially from elements of Japanese organized crime, the Yakuza. So there was always this, you know, kind of extensive uh, criminal element uh, and a lot of the uh, Asian partners that was closely tied into drug trafficking and so forth. So that was kind of the genesis of this. You also had the Latin American wing, which didn't really become um, as big until like the late 60s, early 70s. But um, that was also kind of overseen by an interesting secret society known as Los Tecos, mm -hmm. uh, based out of Mexico. Uh, they were basically a full-blown cult, just very strange um so anyway these were the the glorious elements um that uh served as the basis for the world anti-communist league there uh, the first attempt to put it together was in the pivotal year of 1958 when a lot of crazy stuff started to happen um it didn't work out and it kind of seems like it was actually the american partners who were trying to um sabotage it and uh this went on throughout the kennedy years and essentially because they knew that it would just become a lightning rod for soviet propaganda i mean you know a lot of the members were literal nazis you know from like, the whole nazi regime you know there was no real hiding it so Anyway, we tried to, you know, stop it from getting off the ground for almost a decade. Finally, it came into being in 1966. Um, from there, you know, the Americans had to back out around the early 70s uh, when Los Tecos took over because, yeah, I mean, Los Tecos was just a full-blown cult. But how serious all of this really was you know, is debatable. Um, you know, by the time that Reagan came to power in 1980s, the climate was much different. It, um, there wasn't the same stigmas associating with Nazis, quite frankly, in the Reagan years as there had been in earlier years. So, um, yeah, that was when Michael really went into its heyday. It played a huge role in Iran-Contra. I mean, previously, a lot of the Latin American partners have been involved in Operation Condor. It provided a lot of support to the, you know, the conflict in Afghanistan with the Mujahideen and so forth. I mean, really, it was just used to raise all of these... Uh, these brutal anti-communist militias, uh, you know, not as usually focused in Latin America, but they were really all over the world, effectively, for a policy of rolling back communism, uh, beginning in the 70s and going certainly into the 80s uh, on steroids. And, you know, I mean, it was really horrendous. Um, this is just an element of the Cold War that's never talked about. We're just the staggering amount of people who were tortured and murdered as part of these these various dirty wars that Wackel was linked to in that era. Yeah, and all under, you know, this period of um, this post-war American period of economic boom. And so much of this, what I'm here, seeing in your research was funded by drug dealing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, you know, I mean, just just insane amounts of money were being generated off the books by drug trafficking. And I mean, of course, the banks were reaping a fortune off of this. The arms industry was reaping a fortune off of this. I mean, 
seriously, if you ever look at countries where, I mean, a lot of drugs are, you know, uh, being exported to the United States from, they're almost all countries that were trying to arm, you know, for some conflict or other. And this was something that the CIA and the Pentagon realized uh, long ago, essentially, you know, you have all of these developing countries that we want to sell these expensive weapons to so they can fight our enemies, but they don't have the money through legitimate business to afford these weapons so if we just look the other way they can generate a lot of revenue with drug trafficking and then they can buy all of these you know these guns and tanks and so forth and do what we need them to do what's really striking though is when you look at um chiang kai-shek fighting mao in china you know chiang kai-shek had all the money he could buy the good weapons he had this revenue through the opium trade and yet it was Mao and these guys in the, you know, these peasant military, basically unarmed, that had the more that had the fighting caliber. They they were ready to fight. Whereas Chiang Kai-shek's people were really kind of decadent. They were they were mercenaries. They're probably getting high all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were basically glorified gangsters, really, which is, you know, <laughs> Why they lost. I mean, Mao actually had like a real army. I mean, most of Chiang Kai-shek's army was just, yeah, I mean, it was a sy drug syndicate, essentially, with an army on paper, more or less. And you see the same thing in Cuba, you know, so in that scene in Godfather 2, where there's the car bomb and Al Pacino says to whoever, Hyman Roth or somebody who's supposed to be Meyer Lansky, says, we'll never win. And you you see that Castro you know, they had fighting metal because they were fighting for something, whereas Havana was just gangsters and drugs and prostitution. So it's, you know, it's really interesting how um, that, that alliance of drug dealing, weapons dealing, intelligence agencies, it, it sort of corrupts and weakens the moral fiber of everything it touches. Yeah. And I mean, I think now, you know, especially we're starting to really see the blowback from that so much like domestically and uh, through a lot of our close allied countries like the UK, for instance, where, you know, I mean, the arms industry is even more pervasive, quite frankly, than it is here. You can believe that. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, after years of just setting up these basic you know, basically like gangster regimes uh, throughout the third world. I mean, there really was a process initiated uh, by the defense and intelligence sectors in this country. And of course, a lot of the companies backing them to try to do the same thing here. And, you know, we're seeing the fruits of that with Trump and I mean, soon with Biden, you know, I mean, again, just those, I mean, obviously, you know, presidents have had links to the mafia you know, going back to like what, at least FDR, if not sooner. But I mean, yeah, it's just, I think a whole new level with some of the stuff you see with like Trump and Biden, where I mean, you've got family members just so directly implicated in this insanity. It's just incredible. Well, and it's crazy too, that the economies now are totally based on finance, weapons and drugs, including big pharma, actually. Mm -hmm. It's not about producing you know, cars or, you know, we're not, <laughs> it's just this sort of snake swallowing its tail decadence kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so another thing was, you know, the thing that really blew me away on an episode of the farm a while back, well, I've been kind of watching you work with this theme for a while is that, you know, we, we live in a time of a conspiratainment industry 
huge money in this. And yet we only get a certain narrative, which is, you know, um, the Anglo-American bankers, uh, the Rothschilds, Soros. Um, we get this whole narrative that is really, in a way, it's kind of an elaboration of the old John Birch narrative. And we never get the narrative that you've been working with, which is these, these really darker, more clandestine right-wing organizations like the American Security Council or the Council for National Policy. You wanna talk about that a little bit? Why we only get this sort of one side of the narrative? Well, I mean, essentially because a lot of, you know, really the modern conspiracy industry did originate as a basically a form of Cold War era psychological warfare. I mean, in the case of, you know, an outfit like the John Birch Society, where most of the, you know, modern conspiracy tropes about the Federal Reserve and the Rockefeller family and the UN and the World Health Organization and so forth. I mean, almost all of this stuff goes back to the JBS. Um, and the JBS, in turn, had a lot of overlap with, you know, I mean, a body like the American Security Council and um, also even more exclusive outfit known as the Institute for American Strategy, which was, you know, basically a full-blown psychological warfare operation that was kind of the inner circle of uh, the American Security Council. But I mean, you had guys like Edward S. Butler, um, who famously had the radio debate with Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans in the early 60s, where Oswald acknowledged that he was a communist. I mean, he was a part of the IAS, of the American Security Council, the John Birch Society. And this was a guy who had literally been a psychological warfare officer in the military uh, during the prior decade in the 1950s. So, I mean, these were the kinds of guys that were being sent into these groups like the JBS to help craft the narrative. And, you know, I mean, this is something I actually just talked uh, with Chris Knowles about. But, I mean, it's an interesting point, though. When you look at, like, a lot of the common conspiracy stuff we, you know, are, you know, just bombarded with nowadays, especially constantly. I mean, it's so much of it focuses on the bankers, the international bankers, the bankers this, the bankers that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, this isn't to say that the banks aren't evil and so forth, and they shouldn't be criticized heavily. But I mean, compare the amount of literature out there attacking the banks to that attacking like Lockheed Martin, for instance. You know, I mean, I think there's maybe been one really good expose on Lockheed Martin. But I mean, this is just a company that wields insane amounts of power. I mean, not just in terms of the money and the resources that it has, but I mean, also like a lot of the classified defense work it does. Uh, I mean, a lot of it shows up, of course, in some of the UFO conspiracy literature, but I mean, Lockheed's into a lot of stuff. It really is. And I mean, that's just one example of this, but I mean, you know, the defense industry specifically really just does not get anywhere near the amount of criticism that you see, you know, I mean, something like Bank of America or Chase Manhattan or what have you uh, be subjected to. And again, I'm not saying that they don't deserve to be criticized. I mean, they surely do. But I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff was really crafted by uh, the Pentagon specifically, because again, you look at a group like the American Security Council, it's almost all senior military, former senior military officers in the upper echelon. I mean, the, just the National Strategy Committee, it's just a list of general this, admiral that, you know, colonel so-and-so. Um, you look at the 
the corporate donors for these outfits, there's very few banks, but there's a lot of defense companies. You see Boeing, you see Lockheed, you see General Dynamics, Motorola. I mean, all the, the big defense contractors from that era. Um, so, I mean, this was really, I think, a coordinated effort in a lot of ways, specifically by the Pentagon, uh, to really go after its principal rival um, in American society, which, you know, at that time was the banking industry. And that was ultimately because, I mean, the Pentagon and the banking industry did have somewhat opposing views. I mean, you know, banks, they understand the conflict is inevitable, but they don't like a lot of it, you know, for trade, which is what they make a lot of their money off of financing, including drug trafficking and so forth. You need a certain degree of stability for that. Um, you know, when you have like a full blown world war or something, trade breaks down and that creates a lot of issues for banks. Conversely, if you're a defense contractor, well, the bigger the conflict, the more money there's going to be coming into you. And also you perpetually want more and more conflict because that is what your business model is dependent upon. And that's always, I think, kind of been, you know, a bit of a tension at the, you know, the heart of the American ruling elite. So your world, your, your research suggests that we really, you know, there's not some monolithic Illuminati thing of sitting in wood paneled rooms and making decisions about the world. Instead, there are elite factions. Yeah, well, I mean, I, if anything, I mean, I think, again, you know, the organized crime model is probably like the most appropriate one. Um, you know, obviously, the common perception for years of the mafia was that it was a bunch of just, you know, Italians, and that's nonsense. There were also a lot of Jews. I mean, obviously, even a lot of the more notorious gangsters like Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel were all Jewish. Uh, there were some Irishmen, you know, the Cubans were essentially a part of the mob. And that's why ultimately, um, you know, Robert Kennedy's concept of it being a syndicate, in my opinion, was much more accurate. But yeah, I mean, basically, you have these different families, you've got some Italian mobs, you've got some Jewish mobs, maybe a Cuban one, a couple of Irish ones, and they all get together. Uh, they have some kind of loose coordination to protect the racket. But, you know, ultimately, though, they do break into wars at times and a lot of people get killed. And, you know, it can cause a tremendous degree of instability. So the, the picture I'm kind of getting, though, is that a lot of uh, the, the, there's a big element of SIA in the conspiratainment industry, not necessarily about, well, there's probably a lot of deliberate uh, falsehoods. But there's also a lot of deliberate omission, kind yeah. of bait and switch. Look at this, but don't look at this. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just in terms of like, well, let's look at like cults, for example. I mean, you know, you hardly ever hear any kind of Christian sect you know, brought up when you talk about this kind of thing, even though, I mean, if you've lived in the South for any considerable amount of time, you know there's just a litany of these small evangelical churches that you know i mean have been implicated in just all kinds of abuse and so forth for years and years um whereas conversely you know i mean uh, you'll see something like a murder attributed to the simon necronomicon receive as you know an insane amount of uh, media play and so forth you know it's a lot more sensational um, and I think uh, to a certain extent, you know, that's done deliberately for psychological warfare operations. I mean, 
in the case of something like the American Security Council, it seems really likely that uh, Colonel Michael Aquino, of all people, was a member of it in the 1980s. And this is right around the time, you know, Aquino is making the talk show uh, circuit uh, in theatrical flair with his cape and his makeup and his plucked eyebrows and just, yeah, uh, you know, really going all out, pushing the satanic agenda. And I mean, this was just a huge thumb in the eye of the Christian right. I mean, through this whole era. I mean, it got them so rallied up. And I mean, it's kind of like the same thing with just the whole satanic panic surrounding that. I mean, yes, you know, most likely the amount of people, uh, legitimate satanic activity was very minimal and so forth. And arguably some of the things that these groups were getting up to was insignificant compared to what some of these Christian sects were getting up to. And I mean, some of the bigger churches, when you look at things like Iran-Contra and so forth, but, um, you know, you're going to be able to really stir up your base, though, if you start focusing on a couple of deaths related to the Simon Necronomicon or something like that. Uh, it's going to get the voters for a certain party out in force. Um, and it's also obscuring the, you know, kind of corruption going on behind some of their leadership. Yeah. And it's just causing mass confusion because here's Aquino accused of doing these things and he's got his temple set, but at the same time, he's a high ranking military officer with intelligence credentials who's well not only that but then he's also active in this group that's like really closely aligned with the christian right and what have you i mean it's it's like there's no way that they didn't know that he was a practicing you know a cultist you know it's okay. no i mean this is like a group jerry falwell's like involved with too and it's like oh Akino, you're you're doing great work buddy yeah it's crazy and are you aware that he recently died Yes, 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 yes. Uh, I believe what his soul finished ascending on September 1st or something to that effect. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, somebody today just said to me, he goes, what if, what if Aquino knew too much? Maybe it was time to, you know, I, I don't know much about the nature of his death, but. Well, it's really strange. I've been trying to confirm this, but it looks like the last interview he did shortly before he died was with um, Thomas Schoenberger. Um, oh, really? Guys, yeah, yeah, who's believed to have set up the whole QAnon thing and so forth. So, but yeah, I mean, there's that kind of odd nexus with some of those, you know, people that have been involved with that and also sort of researching Pedogate. Tracy Twyman would be another one, Isaac Cappy. A lot of these people have turned up dead uh, in the last couple of years. It's very strange. Uh, and so, certainly, yeah, you got to wonder maybe if Aquino did know a little too much and it's. It's just very odd, too, how little attention his death has gotten. I mean, oh, yes, I it's, know. I it's know. 2020, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff. But, yeah, I mean, you would think, you know, the conspiracy community would just be abuzz with Aquino dying. Yeah, that's what I would have thought totally. Um, you know, and kind of just dialing back a little bit, you know, what really strikes me is look, I'm 57. So, you know, I can remember the Reagan era. and But I also remember the Franklin cover-up. And, you know, it was largely Republican, Republican players. And the weirdest thing about it was, though, in light of your research, is the one news outlet that, that would cover it was the Washington Times, which was a Reverend Moon organization. And then we come forward to 2020, and almost anything you hear about organized pedophilia is implicating celebrities and politicians on the democratic side of the aisle so it's like it's just it's it's just so hard to get your head around it yeah well i mean i think in the case of 
you know, I mean, it was the Washington Times, I think, that had really outed a lot of the stuff with Franklin. I think to some extent that was also trying to get back at uh, Papa Bush, because, I mean, the more conservative aspects of the Republican Party had never liked Bush one. Um, and just, yeah, uh, once he essentially succeeded Reagan as the president, I mean, it really kind of went back to business as usual with a lot of the old Rockefeller cronies, you know, once again, assuming many of the major positions and, um I, that was not very acceptable, I think, to a lot of people like Moon and some of the more uh, extreme elements, which is where I think you kind of start seeing this stuff leaking out, implicating Bush's White House specifically with the uh, the Craig Spence callboy ring and then linking yeah. it back to Franklin and so forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not surprising, though, I mean, more recently, um, it just seems like this has really been the method that... Uh, the secret right is used for years now, I think, to consolidate their power really uh, globally at this point. I mean, of course, in the case of um, uh, Le Cercao, um, the infamous European body that's kind of the secret rights equivalent to Bilderberg, I mean, they've just been implicated in so many sex scandals. I mean, the Westminster pedophile dossiers and the UK, the Franklin scandal in the US. I mean, all the stuff with Mark Dutroux in Belgium. I mean, they're even implicated with Colonia Dignidad in Chile. So, uh, I mean, this is basically the modus operandi. I mean, specifically for this faction and has been for a while. I mean, it kind of seems like it goes hand in glove with a lot of their other activities with arms and drug trafficking. So you say their modus operandi being far right wing, drug dealing, arms dealing, supporting dictators, yada, 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 is that? Yeah, well, I mean, again, you know, this was basically how we propped up a lot of these, you know, reactionary regimes in like Latin America and so forth. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, I mean, these CIA and these military officers put these regimes into play. In theory, they were doing what we wanted them to do over there. So let's see how it works domestically. <laughs> so this, this would all suggest, though, that the secret right, if you will, has a lot of control over the media. Because we hear all about Bilderberg and the Council for Foreign Relations, but we never hear about the American Security Council. So does that stand to reason? To some extent, I mean, I think it's more that they built up, you know, quite a considerable alternative media, which is really, I mean, now, I mean, of course, the alternative media is practically the mainstream. So, I mean, that's another debate. But yeah, I mean, it is interesting, though, uh, the amount of censorship that a lot of the legacy media has exercised over these groups for many years, um, despite the fact that they do have a lot of close ties to the Rockefeller family and so forth. But I mean, again, you just don't really see them going out about, you know, groups like Lesser Cow or the Council for National Policies. I mean, the amount of exposés written on groups like that, I mean, you could probably count on one hand, you know, there just aren't a lot of them out there. So it is, you know, that dynamic is definitely very interesting. Yeah, and, and this last four years of just attacking Trump for everything, you would think that somebody would say, hey, you know, Alex Jones has affiliation with the American Security Council, or, and yet they never, they never went in that direction. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole thing, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, in a lot of ways, just the attack on Trump has only just perpetuated these conspiracy narratives because, I mean, the whole Russiagate thing is a conspiracy theory, and it's a rather preposterous one in the first you know in that i mean 
you know, I'm not trying to suggest that there probably wasn't some kind of Russian involvement with this network I've been describing. I mean, there surely was, but I mean, not, I would say. More. It wasn't that. It was probably more like gangsters. and. Yeah, I mean, but there's also, you know, there's plenty of Americans, there's plenty of British, there are plenty of Israelis. I mean, yeah, it, it's not a monopoly on the Russians in any way, shape or form. But I mean, yeah, you're basically trying to use this just crude, almost McCarthy-esque propaganda to attack Trump arguing that Vladimir Putin himself is personally like leading an assault on the DNC and just it, yeah. it's ridiculous. It really yeah. is. Uh, and I think it really, in a lot of ways, dragged the legacy media uh, down to the level of like info wars or something like that, even at the same time as they you know, demand censorship for this kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, it is fascinating in these dynamics, you know, I mean, they're afraid to attack uh, a lot of the major groups behind, you know, kind of the alt-right, uh, though they will demand censorship for the alt-right while at the same time they try to adopt their methods. <laughs> and these methods that you point to kind of happening, uh, these PSYOP methods coming out of the 50s, would you say it's largely th this level of sophistication anyway is... Um, post-World War II? Or do you think that we were really seeing this stuff going back into the first part of the century? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely, I think going back maybe even into the first part of the century, I mean, they had really, I think it was probably the first World War where, I mean, there was really a lot of formal studies done by the UK to see how you could use, you know, mass media to mobilize the public at large and so forth. Um, but certainly for the Second World War, I mean, it became just such a major issue, I mean, for the UK specifically in trying to get the United States into the war. Um, so they had to do it just all out propaganda blitz in America at that point in time, uh, which also led to a lot of things that are still with us. I mean, one would be like polls, for instance. Um, the British had effectively been, you know, rigging Gallup polls. I mean, here going back to at least, you know, the late 1930s. So, I mean, now, you know, it's kind of become this big thing to talk about how polls are biased. But I mean, really, that's that's been the case for years now. I mean, really, the whole purpose of polling in the first place isn't to gauge, you know, the public's opinion on something. It's to create an opinion. You know, effectively, if you keep showing people, you know, statistics that 70% of the country believe this, then the theory is eventually they themselves will start to believe that that's the case and change their opinion. So, yeah, I mean, polling and that type of thing has always been kind of used to forge consensus rather than gauge opinion. But, um, you know, that's only really started to become evident to a lot of people in the last, you know, five or six years or so. Yeah, um, last few election cycles. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff really, you know, became more uh, institutionalized and scientific, certainly, or I should say, quote unquote, you know, going into the Second World War and then certainly into uh, the Cold War era. And then, of course, you know, you reach modern times uh, with something like Cambridge Analytica, where I mean, now, you know, you're harvesting data from Facebook from these online surveys and so forth and using it to you know, craft these highly accurate personality profiles where you can target, you know, I mean, specific groups, even specific individuals for very, um, you know, elaborate propaganda. Oh, yeah. I mean, I get stuff on my Facebook feed, you know, advertisements. I'm like, I never told anybody I had toenail fungus. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> how do they know this? You know, it's crazy. Um so I'm going to try to move us a little bit more to your other interests, which I share with you, 
which is more the kind of synchro mysticism and all that. And yet what's so compelling about your work is you don't really see these things as being, you know, that many degrees of separation. Um, and I often think about, it's really kind of funny when I, when I listen to you, especially now that you're, you're, you're consulting for Penny Royal and all that, is I keep thinking about, you know, Peter Lavenda's Sinister Forces books, because it covers a lot of that same geography of, you know, where you live and, and uh, Pulaski County and all this. But the thing that Lavenda suggests in that book, and of course, Lavenda now is something of a dubious character, is it, um, he, it suggests that there's this sort of synchro Jungian unconscious matrix thing that it's less about actual agents kind of running the show and it's more of like people knowing how to splice into this thing. Does that ring true with you? Yeah, I mean, I kind of think so. I mean, you know, I think in a certain sense, a lot of it is just about, you know, reality perception, reality management. I mean, that type of thing. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, this is the type of stuff that really, you know, um, ceremonial magic and so forth has been geared towards for like a lot of years now. But I mean, it's become more evident to a lot of different uh you know, agents and so forth. I mean, that these, you know, same methods, they can be applied to advertisement, they can be applied to psychological warfare. So they have a lot of value to corporate America and to uh, the defense and intelligence sectors as well. But yeah, I mean, there's just this certain kind of matrix, I guess, effectively, that reality is constructed by, I mean, you know, going into the speech, I gave it strange realities. I sort of think that was partly, you know, the purpose of devising cybernetics um, during the 1940s in the first place. Effectively, it's, I think, kind of a, a science to try to understand how it works. But, um, okay, so essentially cybernetics revolves around the study of control systems and systems are created by feedback loops. Uh, there's positive and negative feedback, negative being more prevalent because it's system sustaining and positive feedback is disruptive. So you have to crack down on it as much as possible. But basically- Could you just quickly distinguish between positive and negative a little more specifically? Well, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's basically, um, like I said, I mean, positive feedback would be uh, a disruptive element, um, something that could upend the system and bring instability to it. Uh, it would be more kind of a keen to like revolutionary thinking or something of that nature. Um, I'm not, are you familiar with the TV show Westworld? Yeah. Okay, so a lot of Westworld and how society is oriented in that is really modeled on cybernetic principles, especially like in the third season. Positive feedback would be kind of personified by the outliners. You know, those are sort of like the individuals that they have to send off into, you know, endless wars or get them to do criminal enterprises because they're creative and brilliant people. And if they're not, you know, kept in check effectively, they could tremendously up in society in some capacity. So that would be kind of an example of why positive feedback would be kind of threatening because a lot of times it brings new ideals into the fray um obviously it doesn't necessarily have to work on an intellectual level i'm just kind of giving this you know as i think it's something that'll be easier for people to understand um and then negative feedback would be basically groupthink, you know the type of thing that brings coherence into a society and so forth okay yeah so you know that's the type of thing and that's the sort of worldview that a lot of people 
who are crafting these like psychological operations understand. And I mean, really, this is to some extent kind of a variation off of, you know, things like the law of attraction or something like that. I mean, the different kind of, you know, really synchronicity itself, you know, you, you go and put out your feedback, you know, you're creating loops, uh, and then things start coming back to you, essentially, that's your input and your output, more or less. Um, and I mean, I'm probably sure, I mean, as you, somebody who's kind of has an interest in synchromysticism, I'm sure you know, the more you go out and study it, the more you sort of communicate online or with other people in your life and so forth, the more weird stuff that starts coming back to you. Yeah. Okay, that's how these feedback loops work. And this is something, you know, that a lot of these guys started to realize in the 1940s. And this kind of served as the basis for, you know, like Jacques Vallée's take on the control system and ufology and that type of thing. Also, I mean, a lot of the, you know, essentially like the LSD experiments and what have you uh, started to come out of, uh, uh, you know, the Macy's conferences and went into MK Ultra and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, there was kind of this elaborate study of just essentially reality, how it was constructed, and I mean, how effectively it could be manipulated. And yet there seems to be this wild card in this. You know, so the way I tend to think about that is I would say that there is the map, and then there is the, um, the territory. And the map would be the negative feedback loop. The more you and I look at the map, follow the map, buy into the map, Eventually, we start confusing the map for the territory. But the territory is all this outlying anomalous stuff that threatens to destabilize it. And um, it just seems like if you confuse map for territory, you're moving deeper into a realm of enchantment in, in, in the sense of being, um, uh, you're under a spell. Yeah, yeah, map very much. Spell. Yeah. And so when you start getting into the territory, these wild card things, um, do you feel like, God, this is gonna sound, now I'm gonna sound pretty <laughs> paranoid. Do you feel like that there is some, the part of the surveillance state is to keep an eye on the people that keep leaving the reservation and going out into the territory? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that was one of the big reasons why, um, you know, they started looking in, you know, I mean, formally started investigating the kind of the whole murky world of alternate reality games. Um, of course, when that started is debatable. I mean, Joseph Nathaney noted that the Navy had started to contact him about investigating the synchronicities generated by Ong's hat around like 1999, 2000. But, um, Certainly the military did start formally looking into this stuff by like 2013 and what have you. But yeah, I mean, you know, alternate reality games, they came out of uh, Discordianism. And ironically, Discordianism was, um, or specifically Operation Mindfuck, um, was based on cybernetic principles via game theory. And again, it essentially argued that the only way you could break out of the system was to do totally random acts that the system wouldn't be able to account for. And that's what kind of underlined a lot of these pranks effectively that uh, Operation Mindfuck had started to do. And I think that was sort of a continuation with uh, the alternate reality games. I mean, essentially now you're going to have people LARPing out, you know, Operation Mindfuck for, you know, weeks on end as you're sending them like these crumbs and what have you. And essentially it's to generate new reality tunnels for them to follow, to give them a different way of looking at the world and, you know, in a sense, generate positive feedback. 
So, you know, you've got all these people, I mean, these kind of mutants, if you will, these inspired weirdos like Harry Thornley and Matheny and what have you doing this kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, this is something that the state is going to start looking at, I think, inevitably, because, um, you know, it could lead to some dangerous implications, certainly. But on the other hand, it's also a good way to, you know, keep track of these people. I mean, again, these, uh, you know, potentially outliner types, people that could be threatening to the social order. Right. And that would explain why it's so important to control both the conspiratainment narrative as best you can and the, uh, you know, the alt spirituality, the new age, whatever. You yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you see a lot of that really coming together, like with QAnon. I mean, I think Chris Knowles really called it when he said it's basically just like a pacification program, more or less, because I mean, you know, you're dragging in all of these people from kind of the Alex Jones world. But I mean, even also, you know, you've got people like Jay-Z Knight and Corey Good and David Wilcox who have been associated with it. So you're getting people from the new age and from, you know, uh, ufology and what have you kind of buying in. I mean, it's anything it's kind of amazing how many people associated with Gaia TV have ended up going into uh into QAnon so yeah you know and I mean of course you know we were talking about Schoenberger there's a lot of compelling evidence that he and some other individuals had launched QAnon effectively as an alternate reality game um yeah and I mean it started to draw in all of these different elements into it that could potentially be problematic especially going into um what would let's just say is a very uncertain future. Um, now you've got all of these people being drawn into this massive movement where they can be manipulated towards ends that are probably more favorable to the power structure. Yeah, and it seems like it's so dependent on promising the sort of uh, utopian, utopian outcome that's never really come. It's just continually postponed. You know, they're going to be, the rest will happen. They're in Guantanamo. They're going to Guantanamo. And you've got this expectation that when this does not come through, what's going to happen to all that, that psychic energy and anger in that movement? I mean, it's kind of disturbing to even think about. Yeah, I mean, it's going to radicalize them even further, I think, um, which is why I keep saying, I mean, this next four years is just going to be insane. I mean, you know. I mean, really, whoever did, I mean, prevail, it would have been regardless. But I mean, I think certainly if Biden does end up in the presidency, I mean, yeah, you're just going to see this whole Q thing taken to the next level. Um, it's, I mean, a lot of ways, it's probably going to make the country almost totally ungovernable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it feels like people are at a level of uh, dissonance and confusion that they're almost, they're almost moving into... Um, uh, a freeze dissociative state, meaning that, you know, they're almost passive. You know, they're just sort of waiting to be told what to do or what's the next thing going to happen or what's the next catastrophe. Um, I mean, I work in the field of, you know, substance abuse. And I got to tell you, I've been in this field forever. I'm a drug addict myself. But the way the young folks are showing up now, it's way worse than it was 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. I mean, they have no, they have no, there's a sort of loss of social intelligence. They don't look you in the eye. They don't, um, they don't know how to do any public speaking or, and their lives have been really about digital devices and drugs. And so they're, they're almost like, I don't know, they look kind of, 
it's, they feel empty. Yeah, yeah, no, I know what you're saying. I mean, I think that's, you know, I mean, there's a lot of issues going on now with society, but I do think that just kind of lack of human contact and connection is, yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things. I mean, especially for like you're saying, when you get into like millennials or Generation Z or something like that, where it's like they really did grow up in this this digital environment where so much of their social lives have been online um you know it's difficult making the adjustments to trying to bring that into the real world oh yeah i mean for some of them i mean i mean something like romance that's just like a quaint artifact of the artifact of the past i mean you know it's tinder or digital pornography and that's about it um so there's all these ways of being human that are you know, I was sitting there with some friends of mine and we were watching like the Nutcracker Ballet on TV and I was just sitting there going, you know what? This is the end of a world. You know, people aren't going to the Nutcracker. Increasingly, few people don't even know what it is. They're telling us how to do Christmas now. I mean, you can, you can literally watch the whole socio-cultural landscape morphing in live time. Um, it's just stunning. Yeah. And I mean, that I also think is, you know, I mean, really contributing more to just the breakdown and, you know, consensus reality and so forth. Because again, you know, you also have like the rise of this gamer culture, which I think is so much driving this kind of social, you know, alienation, isolation, whatever you want to call it. And that's only going to get worse, you know, with the rise of VR, with, I mean, these apps, I mean, we've already seen it as what Pokemon Go has been doing and what have you. And, you know, it's even further kind of blurring the distinctions between fantasy and reality. So on, on that note, what got you down this road? Were you originally more a parapolitical researcher or were you more on the synchromysticism side or were they always both there running parallel? Well, I guess in a way, they've always been kind of both running their peril with me. I mean, you know, on the one hand, I was kind of exposed to more uh, conventional, uh, you know, conspiracy, parapolitical narratives, whatever you want to call it, from my dad. Uh, you know, I can remember listening to William Cooper with him when I was a younger kid, oh, probably like 92, 93. That's a of bonding story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, on the other hand... Uh, actually one of the as far as the weird stuff goes like i mean i've had a couple of experiences i had an obe when i was a small kid but one of the more distinct ones that was the first time i took mushrooms um it's the only time i've really had like a full-blown like visual hallucination other than you know trails or colors and that type of thing so i'm at the university of colorado at colorado springs and um uh, it's later at night. They used to do this sort of like midnight meal um, for the students at the dorms at the cafeteria. So I walk into the cafeteria, um, you know, into the section where the food's at, and I start having just these full-blown hallucinations of these giant gray aliens, like walking around, you know, like amongst the students and so forth. I mean, it was just insane, like literally like right there, you know, like with the students and whatnot. Um, so anyway, that had, oh, that had kind of put this weird interest in my head, like, is this, you know, was that just me and my own little warped mind, or has anybody else ever had this experiences? And um, that was what had led me to uh, the book Rick Strassman had done on DMT, this yeah. molecule, I think is what it's called. But apparently a lot of the people um, who had taken DMT and his studies had seen um, gray aliens as well. 
And then I think from there, I had started looking into the remote viewing stuff because they also had a lot of these experiences. But I kind of found out that, yeah, it actually was fairly common to see something like that in altered states of consciousness. And that was sort of one of the things that led me to some other works like, uh, what was it, The Cosmic Serpent and... Uh, I think from there, maybe Robert Anton Wilson. Well, I'd already, I think I had read the Illuminatus trilogy some years ago, but then I got into the Cosmic Trigger and that was like what really got me into a lot of like the synchronistic stuff. Yeah, so I'm like quite a bit older than you. So I got into Robert Anton Wilson, like, I don't know, it must've been the eighties or late seventies when I was first experimenting with acid. And it seemed to have triggered all this weird synchronistic stuff in my life at the time. But it's so funny that he comes back now, you know, like you, you dropped a little nugget uh, a few episodes ago about him when you pointed out that he was one of the first people to introduce this John Birch meme through those, not those books, you know, and that he, and then his relationship with Thornley, I'm not saying that, you know, he was intelligence, but man, it's kind of weird that it comes full circle that way. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I like to try to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume this was maybe the unintended consequences of the practical joke. But I mean, yeah, a lot of the, you know, the modern Illuminati conspiracy tropes, for instance, really came out of Operation Mindfuck. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, but that was, you know, a lot of it was really Robert Anton Wilson and Carrie Thornley. And I mean, now when you see, you know, what's become of that with like Alex Jones and all these people, it's just horrendous when, you know, originally when this stuff was done, I mean, it was actually trying to break people out of these reality tunnels to sort of point out to them just how absurd this, you know, this crude uh, Cold War or psychological warfare that the John Burke Society was being, you know, was uh, administering was. So it's like, well, let's see if we can get these guys to start, you know, talking about the Illuminati and accuse each other of being Illuminati. And that will be really surreal and it might get people to start thinking and, well... It did. It just that instead, they took it literally, and they didn't get that it was a joke. You know, right, right. Do we know, or do you know, if Robert Anton Wilson was a student of cybernetics? I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. Or I mean, certainly, he he mentions it in the Cosmic Trigger. He was obviously familiar with it, and of course, he was a part of that whole SRI scene. I mean, you had other people like Jacques Vallée um, who had been influenced by it. And of course it was um, Gregory Bateson too, who was an early- Yeah, he was the big one, him and Margaret you know, Mead. Mm, yeah. Margaret Mead was another one. I mean, they were there at Stanford. They were you know, involved with Esalen's helping set that up. So, I mean, Wilson was definitely familiar with it, no doubt. Um, <laughs> but it's really interesting because, you know, until you started bringing it up again, I mean, I knew about it. But to me, you know, cybernetics was this kind of artifact of an earlier time, kind of a creature around the same time we got media studies and nobody really pays attention to it. And yet what you're suggesting, and it makes total sense that those, that group of ideas may be at the very heart of what we're experiencing. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, so much of just our social structure is organized around cybernetics. And um, it's not even just here. I mean, you know, they set up that big cybernetic institution in, I think it was Switzerland in the late 60s, early 1970s. Um, But basically, it brought a lot of leading scientists uh, from the US and the Soviet Union together in this sort of quasi like RAND. It was modeled on RAND, actually. Um, 
this think tank where effectively we were like teaching the Soviets all these cybernetic principles for social organization and what have you. And it was it was really odd because a lot of the support for it came from um, the Club of Rome, actually, right when it had first uh, got set up. And I came to find that it was actually this cybernetic think tank that was behind a lot of the um, the big ecological stuff. And I mean, really, the early advocacy for climate change um, and that type of thing. So it's it's really odd that I mean, even when you look at something like a lot, you know, the modern environmental movement, I mean, so much of it was kind of shaped by these cybernetic principles. But you know, it's just amazing. I mean, the influence it had like on the counterculture on so many other things as well. But I mean, yes, it's just its influence is so pervasive in so many aspects of modern life now, and it's never talked about anymore. No, it isn't. It's it's like it's like I said, it's like some weird artifact, much like uh, neurolinguistic programming. Oh, yes, yes, NLP. Yeah, because that seems to have this dark sort of intel life of its own but people act like that's some weird thing from you know 1979 or something yeah yeah that's not even though like what the number two chick in nexium uh what was her name nancy salzman i think was what like the second leading uh neurolinguistic programmer in the united states or something when she had joined nexium really yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. There's almost nothing about her background online anymore before she got to Nexium. You know, they acknowledge that she was really big in the NLP field, but they don't talk about who she's studying under or any of that kind of stuff. It's, um, yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it's more well known, but it kind of reminds me of how uh, so many of the prominent remote viewers had backgrounds in Scientology. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's... Yeah, there's just so much, um, you know, getting just circling all the way back to AA and, you know, you had mentioned Bill Wilson doing LSD at the end of his life. You know, he was doing that stuff with um, Sidney Cohen, uh, Gerald Hurd. Yeah, Gerald Hurd. Um, Humphrey Orman, you know, and so that even that constellation of people doing acid with the founder of AA were people with intelligence connections, you know. So I guess I guess we're kind of moving in that Dave McGowan territory, where, you know, and I, Horsley too, frankly, where all these sort of countercultural heroes start having these funny affiliations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is interesting when you kind of come, you know, full circle, how many you, you know, find of a lot of these counterculture figures, I mean, working with the far right. Um, but I mean, as I've kind of pointed out a couple of times, I mean, when you look at some of these guys like Robert Anton Wilson or Carrie Thornley or, uh, you know, like Stuart Brand, I mean, these guys were libertarians, actually. You know, I kind of feel like libertarianism has been a bit of a, a Trojan horse for a lot of this stuff for many years now. My libertarian friends are going to get mad at me at this point. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know. I mean, it's never. <laughs> well, I, I, a lot of my libertarian friends, you know, they kind of. Well, they, they you know what they'll listen to is they'll listen to somebody like Joseph Farrell, who does this thing of identifying Trump. Some of your research does, too, and I think it's valid with the old America first, um, uh, Robert Taft kind of, you know, movement. And yet you point out so beautifully that um, all America first and isolationism really meant was leave the Europeans alone. 
but South and Central America and Asia is fair game. Yeah. You know, so there's, it's, it's, it's certainly not benign. Um, it's not this total freedom loving movement that we, uh, we get told it is. Well, yeah. And I mean, I know that was, you know, I know like with Jason Horsley, for instance, I mean, I know he tends to, because he's usually more concerned, I would say with social issues, which is why I, you know, I see why he tends to focus like on a lot of like left wing groups, but you know, the thing is, though, is, I mean, libertarianism is arguably even more committed to extreme, you know, personal freedom than liberalism is. I mean, obviously, it's changed somewhat in recent years, but I mean, the left historically had more of a mindset of, you know, we have to balance social responsibility with social freedom, whereas, I mean, libertarianism is kind of like, well, you know, we need to be all about personal freedom and personal choice and so forth. And I mean, if you take that to an extreme, well, you know, you start seeing justifications for like pedophilia and things like that. And, you know, yeah, I think that's right. And I think you also see a, a real um, uh, affinity for all the new thought stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that as well. Um, you, you know, there's no need to have any real, they don't really address things like suffering or what we owe one another. It's instead, if you realize your desires, that's, it's kind of like trickle-down economics or something. If everybody recklessly pursued that, you know, it's Ayn Rand, really. Yeah, yeah, objectivism. Yeah, yeah. So um, another thing that a lot of people, I think, that are into the parapolitical or into, I should say, more occult stuff don't really realize is the degree to which the occult was aligned with the right through most of the 20th century. That there aren't many examples of, I mean, there are some obviously, but a lot of the big name occultists in the 20th century, like Crowley or uh, Evola, were, you know, basically as right wing, you know, Crowley's politics may as well have been Winston Churchill's politics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I know, uh, you know, we did an early interview with Alan Greenfield, who, of course, had been a Thelmanite for many, many years. And uh, he had ultimately left the OTO and, you know, just had generally broken with Thelema in general because he finally come to the conclusion that it had strong fascist tendencies, um, just putting it mildly. But I mean, yeah, a lot of, you know, a lot of cult doctrine, I mean, ultimately is about the acquisition of power, really, um, you know, and that tends to lead it, you know, to really more uh, authoritarian structures, I think, and uh, also in terms of support for more authoritarian political structures. But um, then it makes its way into the cover of Sergeant Pepper's and yeah, yeah. Judy Page, and, you know, it, it's got, talk about Trojan horses. Yeah, because, I mean, again, you know, I mean, if you've ever read, like, the Book of Law, for instance, I mean, you're not going to find a more Darwinistic house <laughs> in the world, really, if you could, you know, I mean, you would have to really struggle to find it. I mean, yeah, I mean, it basically calls for just the deaths of, you know, hundreds of millions of people to usher in, like, the new era. Um, you know, ultimately, the vice of kings is empathy for other human beings, according to the book of the law. So, yeah, in that sense, you know, it's really not that surprising that practitioners of this would have a certain affinity for fascism. Um, you know, and that's also evident, evident in somebody like Jewish Ebola as well. Um, 
a lot of these ideologies do tend to that. And I mean, I think at least some of it probably goes back to the reverence a lot of these guys had um, on this sort of alleged proto-Indo-Aryan, you know, religion that they thought that they had discovered, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, Hindu texts and so forth, um, which again led to a reverence for the caste system and all of this other kind of glorious things that um, had prevailed during the golden era or so forth, but yes yeah. built for the british aristocracy really yeah 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 i mean you can see how easily they moved in and took over but yeah i mean you know that's just and i think in general that's something that isn't really talked about a lot about eastern mysticism especially when you see how prevalent it is now in the new age community and so forth and you never really talk about you know the fact that it was applied quite regularly to this rigid caste system and yeah a lot of the implications of that um yeah we're dehumanized and disenfranchised millions upon millions of people yes effectively so yeah i mean there are a lot of things about that that just yeah i mean are not really spoken about in new age circles or really you know i mean even an attempt i mean even when you get into something like buddhism i mean there's a very sanitized version of buddhism that's been sold to a lot of westerners based upon like the dalai lama who in and of himself had supported nazism at one point which we don't talk about and it also supported nexium even after a lot of the controversy had started to uh crop up around uh you know the head of it and what have you but you know again we just kind of overlook that um or the fact that you know there have been holy wars in buddhism as there have been in every religion <laughs> yeah we're in the, we live in a time of boutique buddhism in america where it's really more about the trappings of it the incense and the flowing and the i mean it's a beautiful philosophy but a lot of people don't realize that if you go into you know, Asia and the Buddhist countries, the, the real religion is people aren't meditating in their houses. It's folk religion. It's, it's still divination and, and healing and conjuring. And, you know, it's, it's kind of universal. Well, this has been a really, really good conversation. Um, I could talk to you for a long time. I guess I'm curious as to where your research is headed. Well, you know, going forward, I want to, you know, expand more on the ARG stuff and what have you, um, you know, effectively, I'm actually working on a book now that's going to kind of chronicle the history of conspiratainment, um, going, you know, from the exercises in the Cold War, and then the Discordian stuff, and then the ARGs, and then kind of finally going into how the rise of QAnon and that type of thing. So here's hoping that will be done in a couple of months. Uh, I'm already about 10,000 or so words in, so... <laughs> Um, and ARGs for our audience is refers to alternate reality games. Yeah. And do you believe that the actual board games were are largely informed by cybernetic principles? Well, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know. I mean, I haven't really looked into like more conventional games, but I mean, yeah, I definitely think the ARGs, I mean, essentially were kind of an attempt to create these, uh, you know, positive feedback loops, not unlike what Operation Mindfuck had been kind of designed to do. And the interesting thing about them is they are magic, except they might not be magic in the way that the players think they are. Yes, yes, yes. 
um, you know, you're not necessarily going to go into, you know, an alternative dimension or something like that, but you are helping to break down uh, consensus reality, which is a kind of magical act in and of itself. <laughs> which is making the possibility for other things to show up. Yes, in theory. Very, very interesting. Well, I thank you very much and I would, uh, I'd love to do it again. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, be sure to check me out at, uh, the farm's official podcast and, uh, please consider signing up for the subscribers section. Um, you know, we've got two additional full length interviews each month for everyone. Um, actually one of the ones that will be up soon is a secret history of the alternate reality games with a, uh, insider with two decades of experience in that. And, uh, also the return of Richard B. Spence and doc future. So, I mean, there's going to be some good stuff with that. Excellent. And tell them about uh, the audience about your books. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have also written two books, Strange Tales, the Parapolitical Post-War Nazis, Mercenaries, and Other Secret History with Frank Zero. Um, and then there was my most recent book, A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment, book one, which was uh, just released in physical copies uh, on Sunday. So uh, if you're looking for some last minute Christmas presents, maybe consider picking up one at Amazon. Oh, excellent. So it is on Amazon now. I look yes. for it. I've read yes, the it first is. one and I loved it. Um, well, thank you so very much. And I hope you and yours have a really good holiday. Well, thank you very much for having me on, sir. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.